You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of the core curriculum. This is the show in the Christian Humanist Radio Network where we read slowly through the Columbia University Great Books list. Uh, today we are talking about book four of The Republic. I'm your host. My name is Michael Farmer. I, I am one of the co-hosts of the Christian Humanist podcast. You probably heard me on several other network shows as well. And uh, I live in Woodstock, Georgia. Joining me from Houston, Texas, is one of my co-hosts on the Christian Humanist podcast, David Grubbs. How's it going, David? Pretty well. Uh, just slow, morning time, having a cold, all those kinds of things. But apparently we all have that in common, yeah? Yeah, and, and I'll go ahead and warn our listeners that we're recording very early in the morning, so I think probably all of us are a little bit slow on the draw and a little bit froggy, and uh, you'll just have to... You just have to deal with that, won't you? Also joining me from Decorah, Iowa, is one of the hosts of the Book of Nature, uh, Todd Pedler. How's it going, Todd? Uh, well, you've already introduced uh, our ailments, so uh, <laughs> it's it's going all right. Uh, you know, 6 a.m. my time is a little early for someone who's on sabbatical, but... Um, Sure. Sorry. It's, That's it's, very it's passive all, aggressive, Todd. I well, you know, I think that was Freudian. I didn't really intend to be passive aggressive, but um you've lived in the upper Midwest for so long now that it just seeped in. I, I, I yeah, sure, you betcha. For for the upper wed, for the upper Midwest, that might have been aggressive aggressive. Oh, that's true. That's Overtly. True. Yeah. Well, as I said, we're talking about book four, The Republic, and this is the book where Socrates finally gets around to defining what justice is, which is the ostensible topic of the treatise, The Republic. Uh, so it's odd that he gets there in book four with six books left to go, but we're not there yet. I want to talk about a few other things before we get to justice and to the three other virtues that he defines alongside it. Um I guess what I want to talk about first is the auxiliaries. Uh, they're interesting to me because they have something like absolute power over the city, and yet they are kept by the structure of the government from taking advantage of that power. They don't. They don't own anything themselves, and in another way, they're they're kind of powerless. Frankly, they're powerless acting for themselves. Uh, which seems very different from the way we conceive of government now, don't you think? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I do. I, I, I do appreciate the reasons for them being so constrained, right? Um, you know, the, the 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 worry about what if what if, what if they get a hold of too much silver and gold? What would they be then? I mean, I, <laughs> so. Yeah, they're very, very different than anything we see, uh, at least on our uh, little continent. 
<laughs> Hopefully different than we see. Right. I mean, they're literally kept from owning private property. Presumably uh, lower lower levels of citizens are allowed to own their own property, but the guardians and the auxiliaries are not. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of communism, but it's only communism at the very upper echelon of society. <laughs> the exact yeah. opposite of practical communism, right? Is that it? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that is not how it was in Soviet Russia. <laughs> We do it but, a different way. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's fair to compare the Republic to Soviet Russia just because that's, exactly a work, not. that's a working out of an ideal where this is an ideal itself. But if you look at the difference between this ideal and Marx's, um, Marx is, is set up so that people can't take advantage of other people uh, and it ends up in Soviet Russia. I wonder if if this version where – where the the people who have power are actually less free than everybody else, I wonder if that would keep us from sliding into something like um, like Soviet communism. I don't know. I mean, the the I mean, and and this is this is getting into one of the issues developed later in the book. In order for this scheme to work, every auxiliary, um, every guardian. Of whichever rank they happen to be, um, has to be in themselves the sort of person uh, who is not liable to desire those things which are forbidden them, or at least um, uh, at least unruled desire, right? Right. So, so, so does that work? <laughs> they have to be that sort of person. And then they're also made that sort of person by their education. So the whole the whole purpose of the education right. of the guardians, which our colleagues should have talked about a couple episodes ago, is to keep them from taking advantage of the city. Right, right, and yeah. and they are. Um, I mean, there's a there's a, rel- a relatively strenuous process under which these these guardians are are, are chosen, and if they show signs of being ruled by their passions and what have you they're they're basically put out i mean it it, it it's it's interesting uh i forget the phrasing now but there's a you know they're 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 sent off to be with the craftsmen and farmers or something uh uh something like that if they're if if they're shown to be subject to to inappropriate uh or desires inappropriate for for a ruler and this isn't necessarily being you know, shamed or punished or drummed out of the core. Mm. It's just about determining which of these absolutely essential social functions each person is best suited to perform. What's their appropriate place? Yeah. It, it really is a division of power, not just among the classes, but among types of power. So in the Republic, you either have personal power, but no corporate power, which would be the the farmers who have a certain amount of ability to run their own lives. They can cook their own meals, for example, whereas the guardians all eat in a common cafeteria. Or you have political power, corporate power, but no personal power. So the auxiliaries and the guardians are in control of what happens to the city, but not in control of what happens to themselves. Hmm. So it, it's very interesting. It's, it's difficult to see how this would work. Um, because as I'm sure has been mentioned on this podcast before, who exactly is the we that is controlling the guardians that, that Socrates keeps talking about, you know, somebody here yeah. has both kinds of power. Uh, it's just an invisible power, uh, 
as we're being told the story. Well, it seems as if Socrates and his partners in the dialogue, um, uh, Adamantus and Glaucon, have imagined themselves into that role of the of the mythical, mm-hmm. legendary, semi-divine founder figure, right? Mm-hmm. Of of a city state, one who is, by their very nature, um, equipped and empowered to do such a thing because they are because they are superhuman. Um, you know whether or not someone could actually do this without being that that sort of that sort of figure uh you know that that's something yet to, yet to be determined in, within even within the republic but you know for the for the term of the thought experiment i think they're imagining themselves to be the sorts of people that uh greek city states attributed their founding to right. which tended to be remarkable extraordinary godlike people whose founding laws were not to be questioned because they were the founders. They kind of wind the clock of the city, which then continues to run even after they stop winding it for a while. I mean, one thing we'll see late in the treatise is that uh, all of these cities fall apart eventually. No matter how great your society is, it's not going to last. So I think the clock metaphor is actually a good one. Hmm. Socrates and Glaucon and Adamantus wind the clock and it runs for a certain number of decades or centuries and then it stops running. But they're not having to continually choose the guardians. If you choose the first generation of the guardians correctly, the whole thing works uh, for, for a good long while. Well, it's, it's interesting yeah. that um, – so they have constructed this thought experiment um, – but do explicitly mention that the laws that pertain must be handed down to them, right? Right. You know, from the Delphic Oracle or 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 or, or whomever. Um, and I think that's important, right? Um, because they are tying the 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 healthy running of this place to to a set of laws that presumably they themselves are divining at the moment right um but but they you know they they i i just found that mention interesting because you know while they say this nevertheless they're 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 constructing the ideals for the society even as you know well, without consulting the the oracle as far as i know although we know that that's what socrates himself is reputed to have done so maybe he's building baking that into the the, the baking in some information he got from the the oracle um unbeknownst to us into this structure right one of the difficult things about reading the republic and taking it on its own terms is that from a 21st century standpoint we read this and we are apt to see it as very cynical that mm. these are these are people who are just trying to control society, so they're making up all right. these rules that are more practical than they are uh, ideological. And yet, mm. I think knowing what I know about Plato and Socrates, they must have thought that these rules somehow adhere to the reality of things. And mm. when they talk about things like the noble lie uh, of the of the different metals mixed into the blood of the citizens they, mm-hmm. they they must just be doing that as a practical measure to back up what they see as the real reality of things 
but it's very difficult for me to read this and agree with them. Maybe just because the politics of this are so foreign from everything uh, I've ever experienced and really everything I've ever read about. The closest, the closest you get to an enactment of this society is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Although even there, it's not exactly this. It just uses some of the trappings. Well, I mean, more, you know, Thomas More's Utopia is also, you know, built along, very much along these lines. I mean, explicitly. You know, I've not read that book. Can you, can you talk about it? Yeah. So uh, Utopia is a, a book we have covered in uh, my teaching in Paideia. It, it's been, I think, nine or ten years since, since I last taught it. But certainly More is building a society um, – which he's going to knock down in, in, in many ways. But he's building one which, which has a lot, of, a, a lot of overlap with what we see in the Republic. Um, and the thing that I think that I was um, mostly, uh, mostly had in mind when I, when I brought it up was the idea of a very rigidly controlled um, both hierarchy and, uh, and sort of vocational uh, structure in which everybody is, you know, to be doing uh, that which they are both able and educated to do. So you have you have a very strict structure of job function uh, and so forth. Um, and you know, of course, David can talk a lot more about what what more is doing in building this this utopian society. Um, but it has a, an awful lot of, of, of uh, resonance with, with the structures that uh, Plato puts in place. David? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that he's, he's riffing off of the kind of thought experiment that Plato is doing in Republic. But it also has a lot to do with Plato's use of Atlantis in uh, in some of his other dialogues, uh, in which Atlantis is presented not as an imaginary, uh, not as an imaginary society, but as a, a real historical society that once existed and was in some way um, ideal or model. Um, I, so, it, uh, Moore is doing something similar to that, um, using using the form of a traveler's tale, right? Um, you know, someone from us uh, or someone who had lived in Utopia uh, encounters more and is able to tell him about, uh, about what, that, what that mysterious um, perfect place that is also no place uh, is like. Um the one uh, one of the main purposes of utopia is social satire uh so so the ways in uh, in which moore's um imaginary perfect society uh the ways in which it's perfect is often a very pointed critique of the ways in which his own um tudor england uh or europe generally is not so there are there are definitely points in Utopia where it's not entirely clear that Moore would prefer a society to work that way, but the way that it works, read back onto his own context, um, is 
is is is a kind of social critique. So um, the extent to which that's happening here, uh, I don't know. I mean, is is I I I don't think it's social satire. I mean, if 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 Socrates wants to critique you know the current society he's not doing it in any kind of veiled way he's 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 just coming right out and saying you know this is the way we see things happen in our society and that's wrong so in our imaginary perfect world we're going to do it different right there's not a lot of humor here right not a lot of humor and not a lot of well not satirical irony there may be that other kind of irony the allegory or the parable um but not the um not the kind of winking irony or the uh, I, I I don't know satire is, is is difficult to describe to someone who doesn't immediately understand what you're talking about. Right, and I mean it is an ancient Greek form, so it's not like it would have yeah. been unknown to Plato. But um, for whatever reason, he he is not really a satirist. He he isn't. But it, it's interesting. To, it, it's interesting to me now that you two are are. are addressing this particular issue it's interesting to me to consider and and i haven't done much of this uh at at length but to consider how the way that the the way that plato has constructed this discussion maps onto his expected audience um you know it's it's very clear that he is um He's, he's pulling no punches with regard to the dangers of wealth and and the ruling class. Um, and so to yeah. whom he is writing is going to flavor the way that he goes about this. If he's um, if he's writing, you know, I, I don't know. I, what do you what do you think about that? Um, you know, he's. How does his audience play a role here? Because we didn't talk about that in episode one, uh, uh, when Michael, when you and I were on. Uh, I wasn't on that episode. Weren't. That was you and Nathan, oh, Nathan. and Ed. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're the same. <laughs> you are the same. That's right. That's right. But he's in Franklin Springs, as I as I understand it. Yeah. So I, I you know, I don't know. What I mean, what do you, what do you? Th- Think because I I can see him doing it satirically, but he's just straight up calling out what's wrong or what the dangers of you know yeah of. yeah and even even when he gets to critiquing other types of cities in book eight. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really do it satirically. He has some vivid images. Uh, most famously, he compares the tyrannical city to a werewolf, but. Uh, he doesn't. It's. I wouldn't really call that satire. Really, even irony. Hmm. But as, I mean, as David yeah. points out, there's a degree to which he is being ironic because he's not just coming out and saying things. He's kind of uh, weaving back and forth in order to make his point. I mean, yeah. Kier- Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation is called "The Concept of Irony with Constant Reference to Socrates." Hmm. So I, yeah. I mean, there really is there really is an ironic component to what he's doing, but it's not ironic the way somebody like Thomas More or even somebody like Aldous Huxley is ironic. Hmm. I want to move on here because I want to make sure we hit everything. Uh, the Republic is, among other things, a critique of art, and he gives a lot of reasons why he doesn't like art as it's 
uh, usually practice. So early on in the treatise, he talks about how it teaches bad morals and late in the, in the treatise in the book 10, uh, he, 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 he makes a metaphysical attack on art that, that essentially it, it doesn't deal with real things. It deals with copies of copies. You get a very brief critique here of innovation in art he says, this is around line 424C. Novelty ought not to be commended, nor ought the words to be so understood, for the introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned as imperiling the whole state, uh, which seems kind of histrionic, <laughs> I think, to, to most to most readers. The idea that if you have some sort of innovation in art, the whole city is going to go to hell. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, of the panic over a gangster rap in the, in the 1990s that this, this is somehow going to sink the entire society. Uh, Although there too, you had, you had part of that first critique, which is it's, it's teaching antisocial behavior. And this is not exactly that innovative music is teaching antisocial behavior. It's that the innovation itself in the music is dangerous. What did you guys make of that? I, see, I went, I went back to jazz actually, which, which, the the the, the, right. the concerns over jazz predate uh, um, <laughs> predate. Yeah, it's, it's a rap. better example because so much of jazz is instrumental. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 and 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 I, it's the disordered. It's the you know the perceive, perception of a disordered nature to uh, you know to some of the things that um, uh, that jazz artists uh, engaged in. I I think it's kind of funny. I mean, it's kind of funny for me to to imagine Dave Brubeck as this radical, um, but uh, though of course he, of course he was well, of course I mean, Take Five the album right. is, is 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 a perfect example. But in but in his way he was a political radical uh, as well because he was so anti segregation both yep. both openly and covertly. Yep. So I mean you you do see that that kind of innovation is often tied to political radicalism and I mean in. The case of Brubeck, it's a. I think we can all agree a good kind of political radicalism, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm sure at the time people didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's it's funny, you know. It, so I just laughed out loud, you know, when I when I read this because you know he sort of narrowed down the appropriate modes for music. Um, your own the ones that soothe the, the soul. ones you 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 have one string. <laughs> And you, you, you know, you don't harmonize, you don't have poly, you know, uh, polyphonic music or what have you. And you're only allowed the Dorian and Phrygian modes. Um, and then, oh, my goodness, if you invent another one, all hell's going to break loose. Yeah, the, the, there's, yeah. I, I think the thing that's worth taking away from this, though, is that there's a certain lawlessness that can come through art. Uh, and it, it can come through maybe especially if you're not thinking of art as as the bringer of lawlessness, but just as something to kind of numb yourself or something to enjoy. And in that sense, it reminded me of an essay by T.S. Eliot called Religion and Literature. Do you guys know that mm. one? Mm-mm. 
I don't. It, it's written after his conversion. And, uh, well, here's, here's one of the things he says. I have it written down. But I incline to come to the alarming conclusion that it is just the literature we read for amusement or purely for pleasure that may have the greatest and least suspected influence upon us. Hence it is that the influence of popular novelists and of popular plays of contemporary life requires to be scrutinized most closely, and it is chiefly contemporary literature that the majority of people ever read in this attitude of purely for pleasure, of pure passivity. So I, I, maybe I'm more open than I otherwise would be to this, this argument about novelty, not so much because, oh, we need to stick with the Phrygian and Lydian or whatever, I can't remember the modes, because we're supposed to stick to any one particular thing, but because, in fact, if art has power... It must have power to do bad things to us, and the degree to which we're not aware of that power is the degree to which that power can be exercised over us. Can I pitch a, 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 a point that I think is relevant here but isn't in the mode that we've been going so far? Go for it. Uh, I think it's really important in looking at Plato's comments about which modes of music to use and that there that there be no innovation in the selections that are made uh, because it is one of the two main subjects for the education of the guardian uh, music and gymnastics are are what they are taught um, but if all guardians are taught, and, it, and it's not just the musics, um, it, not just music in which there should be no innovation, uh, but before that quote that you read, uh, Michael, um, uh, uh, the, uh, this is the point to which, above all, the attention of our rulers should be directed, that music and gymnastics be preserved in their original form and no innovation made. So it's not just the music, it's also the gymnastics. It's, also, it's not just what they are doing um, in this kind of aesthetic, um, rational soul work form, but also what they're doing in the bodily exercise, strengthening, discipline, physical form. So he would hate the 1990s NBA as well as jazz, is what you're telling me. Well, I think what he's wanting to do is establish um, a stable training of body and a stable training of mind for the ruling class so that over the generations they are predictably the same. Hmm. I, I, I think he wants to make... I think it's 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 not so much that... Um, it may be not, not so much uh, that innovation in the music itself is necessarily going to make them bad so much as it is going to make them different and he wants them to have a kind of sameness and predictability like he's giving them all this myth about their origin, right? You know, they're supposed to believe that, you know, they didn't exist <laughs> before. I mean, that's the end of book three. Um, you know, uh, they're all supposed to receive the same kind of training. They have the same kind of living facilities. That everything, everything is supposed to be the same. And one of the functions of this is that they are treated as if uh, when when the suitable nature for the guardian is given the same uniform training it will produce the same sort of person who will predictably obey and enforce and uh, apply 
the law of the founders for consistently for as long as possible. Right. And well, and, and tellingly, in book eight, when things start to fall apart, the reason they fall apart is because the education of the guardians falls apart. Right. So it might be less that innovation in music is just evil and more the kind of arguments that folks have for having a a a core curriculum to coin um, a phrase <laughs> to coin a phrase right i mean it's not that you know well in this generation we read these books and but there are other good books so in this next generation we'll just read other good books um i mean sure there of course there are other good books you know we could be reading any number of plato's uh, or any any number of dialogues by Plato in the person of Socrates, but we're reading this one, and it's important that the generations of those going through this core curriculum read this one because it means that it's something that those generations have in common, that their 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 thinking is is in some sense tuned um, around this same mental task, uh, and there's a real kind of social good in the continuity of that maybe no i think you're i i think you're on to to something there i you know uh socrates here is so concerned with balance of 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 these two, of the of these two parts the physical and the the the, the mental i you know I, I guess i'd have to say um and in innovation, if you will, you, I guess, risk those things coming out of balance, right? I mean, the, 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 the rulers are to be trained yeah. in both of these ways because you don't want them to be too, uh, what's the word he uses? Too, if you're too physically, if you're too oriented to the physical training, you become savage. And if you are too oriented to the music and poetry and whatnot, you become too soft. And so if you innovate, I suppose, or if you stray in, in the, uh, in the poetic sphere away from the gods and heroes foundation, um, you, 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 you then can throw things off kilter in such a way that, uh, uh, that the rulers then become uh, dangerous in, in one form or another. Right. Hmm. So maybe Dave yeah. Brubeck is evil after all. <laughs> well, but Dave Brubeck may not be evil for everyone in the society. Right. Well, we're back to the whole personal freedom versus civic freedom. Yeah. I mean, the idea is, you know, the, the idea of the, at, the, at the beginning of book four, uh, which, and this is Adamantus's, uh, you know, complaint to Socrates is that you've taken this class of people that you've given the most power, and they are the ones that you're making most miserable. <laughs> like, everyone else is able to have fun, except except the 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 guardians, except the the auxiliaries but this is um, this is good because it means people aren't going to seek that power right right so but so there 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 is someone in the society potentially who is listening to jazz 
<laughs> it's just not the Guardians. All right, well, let's let's get on to the, the four virtues that he sets out here. And, and I guess before we start talking about what they are, we ought to start talking about their dual nature. So he, he gives you these four virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. And he gives them to you first in a civic form, what it means for a city to be wise, courageous, moderate, and just. And then he gives them to you in a personal form, what it means for an individual to be wise, courageous, moderate, and just. And maybe before we start talking about the specifics, we ought to think about the relationship between those two things. Because one popular way over the centuries of reading Plato is to say, well, you know, he doesn't mean all of this political theory as political theory. It's an elaborate metaphor to explain how the human soul works. And there's probably a backup for that because he does say specifically when he starts talking about politics in this book, that it's easier to see it writ large. Um, and so that's why he's going to talk about all this political stuff. What do you think? I mean, does that mean that we shouldn't take the political theory seriously? Is this all just an elaborate metaphor for how our souls ought to work? I mean, maybe that bespeaks my laziness, but that is often the card I play when I encounter something in Republic that just makes me go, I, I don't see why anyone would ever think that this is actually a good thing. But then if you think about it as this, this imaginary society um, is also a metaphor for a well-ordered soul and you can see how that allegory works, then you just kind of go, okay, well, and maybe this is one of those cases where he is, um, in some sense, exaggerating, or, uh, you know, he, he talks about the society as the place where these things are writ large. Well, maybe this is the part where he's just grabbed a really fat marker and he's drawing in capitals, <laughs> you know, in, in, in ways that, probably would not function very smoothly or realistically in an actual human society, but which make in a writ large, bold-faced kind of way something clear about the internal. But again, maybe maybe that is my... Uh, maybe, maybe that means I need to work harder. Maybe I play that card too soon. Hmm. I, you know... I mean, his reason for at least the ostensible reason that we have in the text for going to the city uh, is is to make certain things easier to see. I mean, I think the you know, he, yeah. he, he says something to the effect of, well, you know, you can make out these, you know, you imagine that you can see this writing and you can make out that they're writing, but the letters are really small and it's hard. It's hard to really understand them uh, until you see that the same thing is written close by in much larger font. I think he doesn't use the word font. Um, uh, for us to be able to read more easily. And, 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 and so, uh, the way I've read this, I guess I, I, it, perhaps it's unfair, um, and lazy on my part is to see that he's doing both, um, in some sure. sense, because he's, you know, he's, he, he amplifies the problems of the, you know, that, that originate in problems in the soul to, uh, be, you know, to, to be seen more easily as problems in society if this particular soul issue 
um, is manifest in a large number or manifest in the wrong kind of people. Um, this is what's going to happen to society. And so we need to guard against that. Um, but uh, in doing so, you know, he's still, he's still really playing doctor to the soul in some sense and saying, so this is what your, you know, a well-ordered soul needs to look like. Um, as he sort of circles back from the, the manifest problems at the city level or at the society level, um, as he, as he, as he rolls back to say, to, to go again, to, 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 to treat the soul. Um, so I, you know, clearly in his picture, the individuals impact society and, and vice versa. Um, problems or virtues that are individual are shown in the Republic, are seen uh, at, at the grander scale, and there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the two. Right. Right. And, and I mean, if you think about Aristotle... The Nicomachean ethics is a preface to the politics. Mm -hmm. that there, there's not really right. the divide that we think of between ethics and politics mm -hmm. for these for these guys. And so I, I would caution our listeners against letting Plato off the hook for his political views mm -hmm. too quickly. And, and when I have taught the Republic, I bring up that viewpoint and I say that there's legitimacy in it. And that, that maybe maybe they should do the grubs thing and anytime anytime they come across something that shocks them, say, Oh well it must be allegory. But I some of this stuff seems pretty difficult to me to allegorize. Mm -hmm. So for example, the women are kept in common in the Republic. Mm -hmm. I would think that would be very hard to find a corollary for the individual soul. And so I, I, I suggest reading the Republic and allowing yourself to be shocked by it mm -hmm. and then use that shock to understand what your unspoken assumptions about politics and ethics are and allow the Republic to, to poke at them a little bit. And, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody is going to accept Plato's society as the actual ideal society. But in its foreignness, even its monstrousness, we might be able to see our own societies a little more clearly. Yeah. Though, at the same time, always have in the back of your mind that this is someone who openly advocates using non-literal stories in order to accomplish particular ends in terms of soul formation. Mm. True. You know the the use of parable in Republic and in and in the Socratic dialogues generally, um, I, th I think is really important. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think I think balancing between these two, but balancing between those two and maybe not. Um, I, I I know what I know what side of the fence I tend to fall off on whenever I feel imbalanced. Um, you know, I, I, maybe I should, you know, I, I should certainly, you know, heed your warning, Michael, and and not so predictably fall off that fence in the same way every time. <laughs> well, and I mean, if you're going but at to the heed same time, my, there is another side to that fence. If you're going to <laughs> heed my warning, though, you've got to you've got to do the other side of it too, which is when you're shocked, yeah. mm -hmm. don't dismiss it. Right. So so don't try to allegorize it away, but also don't say, oh, well, Plato's an idiot. Right. Which is what I think students 
tend to do if they when they run across something in the Republic they don't like, and there, obviously there's a lot in the Republic we're not going to like, is that they mm-hmm. they just they just kind of sweep Plato away. And one of the nice ideas about the allegorical approach is that it it, it allows you not to sweep him away. But uh, mm-hmm. I I think you should let the monstrousness stand and kind of stand in its shadow. Mm-hmm. To use my own allegory. <laughs> Another useful thing is to read the whole book. Yes, that that's always a good yeah. idea. Although I, I I can't I can't subscribe too much to that because when when I have taught the Republic, I only teach excerpts. Right. We can't right. all be Nathan Gilmore teaching it every year to his freshman comp classes. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, it, it's just. You know, there are some things that he pitches it, and then later he comes back to it, right? Um, in in maybe a different sort of form. So, you know, the ways that we might, you know, react to an idea the first time, um, might have been modified by something said later. I mean, this is a, I mean, I mean, y'all y'all have already said it. This is a deeply discursive, recursive, rabbit traily kind of critter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, locating this one little backwater of the conversation in which Socrates says something that makes your eyebrows hit the roof. Um, you know, that's just that's just one moment in this conversation. Um, maybe don't immediately throw the book against the wall. All right. Well, let's start talking about these virtues because we don't have a whole lot of time left, and uh, I mean that's the Fair. that's the meat of this book, ironically. Uh, so yeah. we got wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. What is wisdom on a civic level? Well, he, he does speak of the love of learning and 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 order, right? I mean, these are things which are uh, which are trumpeted, right? Um, it is not mere. I was going to say not mere rationality, um, but it is. You know, it's it's a, it's a mental faculty, right? Um, it's a form of knowledge, is, right? It, yeah, but it is knowledge rep- appropriately applied, right? Right, um, and chiefly the the understanding of fitness of of. Uh, fitness of people to tasks, fitness of, of people to roles and so forth. Um, and, and possessing that is, you know, is, is, was one, well, one, one reason why the guardians must, must be wise. Uh, right. Since they are, you know, they are overseeing, um, this, this, this city, if you will. Um, and, and, and civically speaking, mm-hmm. The wisdom of the guardians is the only wisdom that matters. Right. The, the, the city is wise if the guardians are yep, wise. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that the farmers or the artisans aren't supposed to be wise in their in own the, way, but their wisdom doesn't really, mm-hmm. doesn't really contribute to the wisdom of the city as a whole. Right. No, I, and, and, that, and, that's, and that's where, yeah, I mean, there, there, there is that odd hierarchy, but yeah, I don't want to, you know, don't want to neglect the, the, the fact that people of all stripes have a wisdom which is appropriate to their station. Right. But when he talks about wisdom here, he is talking about the knowledge of how to rule. Yep. And so... Yeah. Yep. 
how the state deals with itself and it deals with other states. Um, you know, and and yeah, you know, I'm going to do my allegory thing again. <laughs> um, you know, the, the the wisdom in the individual is how to govern mm-hmm. oneself in oneself and in relationships to other, um, you know, wise and autonomous selves. Um, you know, as I govern myself. Uh, but that that he locates the wisdom um, in the ruler is important. Mm-hmm. It's very important that this is a special that this is a special kind of knowledge. Um, it's a profoundly um, anti-democratic sort of thing. It's the kind of thing that uh, uh, I don't know. I I know that Gilmore teaches this all the time. Um, and it's so funny to me because I think he would. I think he would want the cobblers to be in charge in one sense. Yeah. Uh, um, you know the 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 unquenchable optimist about you know the wisdom of the common person. Um, Plato is not that. <laughs> well, and I mean, if if a cobbler was that wise, the cobbler shouldn't be a cobbler anyway. Right. He should be running the city. We're not we're not talking yeah. about professional politicians being wise. We're talking about people yeah. who who are bred for this and whose soul is oriented toward this to begin mm-hmm. with. It is it is quite literally tuned to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, to go back to that musical metaphor. Yeah. He um yeah. for for the individual though, to be wise is to allow your reason to rule the rest of you. An order, yeah. I mean, order. There is an order among one's own faculties, right? One's own parts. I think what you'll find with all of these virtues when on the personal level, mm-hmm. we're always talking about appropriate order. Right. The, the personal virtue for Plato yeah. is getting your stuff in order. Right. Cleaning your room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Making your bed. Well, courage is similarly specialized in the city. The, the city is courageous when the auxiliaries are courageous. So once again... If your soldiers are courageous and your artisans are cowards, you probably can still say that the city itself is courageous, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This because, is this is probably yeah. the quickest one to talk about because for Plato, as for Aristotle, courage is mostly about fearing the right things, yeah, right? Not fearing things you shouldn't be afraid mm-hmm. of, and fearing things you should be afraid of. Fear he who destroys the soul and not the body. To quote, paraphrase Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, though this is still one that can be transposed into the individual, absolutely, and not just and not just the individual of the uh, of the guardian, right? So yes, there is that civic courage, which is about the defense of the city, knowing what to fear, knowing what what not to fear in in those kinds of terms, so that you could have a coward, you know, a cobbler who is a coward in terms of in that in terms of that civic courage. But he that cobbler cannot be a good man if he does not have the equivalent of that courage that is that is right for the individual. And this is, I think, importantly, something that is taught. So education, in some sense, is about learning to fear the right things, which yeah. I don't know how much of our current educational system is built on that idea, to be honest with you. Well, is, yeah. is, is, is I I can see parallels, right? I mean, 
um, fear and concern are, 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 are siblings, right? Yeah, that's true. And so I, I do think that we, in at least part of our educational endeavor, we are trying to guide students' eyes to the big things, the things that they should be most concerned about. And to be, you know, to be less concerned about other things. Um, I mean, one way to think about that is to say that all education is about inculcating appropriate fear, whether it knows that's what it is or not. Right. So that when you when you teach students something, you're teaching them what to fear and what to love, even if you think you're just preparing them for the job force mm-hmm. or trying to teach them to be more concerned citizens or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. All right. Moderation, he says, is a matter of consonance and harmony, uh, which, again, is something close to order. What, what does that look like civically? Oh, well, I mean, I do. Th- I, so in 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 the city, uh, I, I I I put it down to, you know, again, the 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 ordering of the appropriate ordering of society that those who have cobbler skill should be cobblers. Those who have skill with farming should be farmers. And uh, that you don't to... uh, I I am losing my mind. Ironically, that means you're not being very moderate. What I was about to say is I'm I'm losing my, 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 my faculty of moderation. But, I mean, the point is you don't swing one way or the other too much. Right, you don't overemphasize, uh, you know, one part of society. I, I actually now that I now that I'm thinking about, I'm also thinking about the because this comes up right at the very beginning of this book, where, um, where the critique is is brought in that your rulers aren't going to be very happy, um, and the reply to that is well, we don't want to actually make any particular. Uh, uh, part of society overly happy but we want to make right. the city as a whole happy yeah okay yeah. and so where i see moderation coming in is where we don't go overboard towards one direction or another um but we rightly order things within society so that the whole can be satisfied or happy or, or flourish run well and so forth yeah the, I mean, the harmony, as he says, uh, as he calls it, between a weaker and a stronger and a middle class, whether you suppose them to be stronger or weaker in wisdom or power or numbers or wealth or anything else, um, it is the agreement of the naturally superior and inferior. Um, so that with it, he makes it about class, but it's it's about uh, a, a balanced of harmony between the classes. It's not just, um, this isn't, uh, at least the way that he seems to be stating it, it isn't aristocracy, aristocracy um, simpliciter. Hmm. It's, not, it's not Dracula. It's not the evil aristocrat feeding off of the blood of the people. Yes. Yeah, it's not just saying that that social order itself is its own good. The social order exists, but there needs to be a particular sort of relation between uh, a harmony between the groups in that order that each 
has its job and does its job well um, for the for the good of each. So that when at the beginning of book four, like you pointed out, Todd, the the guardians are denied certain kinds of pleasures mm-hmm. that other members of the city enjoy. That is for the good of the city. Mm-hmm. It is it is good for them to uh, to undergo that that difference mm-hmm. because it because it it helps to create harmony in the city overall. The city would be disharmonious. It would it would be intemperate if the garden guardians were permitted to have both power and luxury right. because they would then use the power for the sake of the luxury. And the luxury would unfit them to properly exercise the power. Boy, this doesn't have anything to say to our time today, does it? Right. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to think of a more immoderate uh, culture than the one we're currently living in. And moderation is very yeah. closely related to justice to the to the extent that I'm not sure they're really two different things the way Plato describes them because he says that civic <laughs> justice means that everybody's doing his own yeah, job they and morph. is happy doing it. Yeah, they definitely morph into one another. But the, the difference is that I think when, when present-day readers look at moderation in Plato, they can say, oh, that sounds, that sounds like a good thing. Hmm. But my students were always really horrified by his description of justice because it means that social mobility is a real evil. Hmm. If you're a farmer, you must not want to be an artisan. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that, they have, is that it's, it's so common in our culture to believe in each individual having some kind of permanent, essential, unchangeable, unmalleable self to which they must be true. Mm. Um, that's may, maybe the orientation of that is different, but I don't think it's that much different a thing. It's you know Plato was still saying there is something for which you are fitted by nature. Mm-hmm. And you ought to do that thing, right? Um, and he expresses it in the in the city part of Republic, in terms of class and vocation. Um, but aren't all of our students seeking to find that thing which, uh, which is their thing? Yes, I, I but the difference is for Plato that is that is essentially assigned or recognized when you're very young. So by the time they're 18, 19 years old and taking your intro to philosophy class, they're not um, – they don't have that mobility anymore. They already know what they're supposed to be and really yeah. they should be in training to be a jeweler or a, uh, a, a milkman or, or whatever else that, mm. that the society has determined – not decided, determined yep. – they're most fit to do. It's not a matter of personal yeah. discovery and exploration. It's a matter of this is what you are and by gum – you're going to be that. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that yes, someone else is telling you to do something, but they're both a tip, but they're both making the same kinds of claims about something that is true about that person. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's that's fair. And also, it's even though we've talked about this in terms of class, it's not really just about class. He's he he says in. Um, in the previous book, that someone might be born, um, you know, to a family mm-hmm. of, of artisans and yet have 
be you know be fitted in their soul for guardianship or someone might be born into you know born of parents who are guardians and yet um be best suited to yeah. farming uh so so it's not the sort of medieval uh you're a peasant because your dad's a peasant and his dad was a peasant and so forth and our last name is all smith because that's what mm-hmm. we do um there is a there is a mobility but you're not moving yourself right, right. and and most people are not going to move out of their class like that mm-hmm. uh the the idea that a gold would be born to a bronze is rare mm-hmm. yes and i think by design in this imaginary republic would become more and more rare over time yes mm-hmm. as the guardians uh, as a as a breed, like he keeps talking about them as dogs. Yes, they're they're literally bred. Yeah. Yes, he he is breeding them to be to be good dogs, good guard dogs, good guardian. Um, yeah, <laughs> Who, who's no, a well, good I mean, guardian? <laughs> yeah, but but isn't mm. that? I mean, you know, in nature there are sheep and there are wolves. But through breeding, we have made dogs. The wolf that doesn't kill sheep, but defends them. Yeah, that basic mm-hmm. um, metaphor of the dog, I think, does a, does a lot of uh-huh. work. Um, but again, do you do that to a person? Um, I mean, Plato says that we, that we, that we necessarily do for the good of society. Um, and I think in a certain extent, that's what military training is supposed mm-hmm. to do, um, what law enforcement training is supposed to do. Well, yeah, and it, it takes... I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to say this that doesn't sound offensive to police officers or military people. It takes a natural aggression that could be used for nefarious ends and redirects it, right? The, the line from... Mm-hmm. Uh, Sympathy for the devil, every cop is a criminal. I think there's some truth in that, that for a, a lot of people, to not undergo that sort of discipline would turn those natural gifts for order or whatever into into something quite nasty. And and sometimes even even does with the uh with the with the training, right? I mean, uh, we don't have to look very far to see cops abusing their power. And I, I think this this loops us back around to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this, which is that power is distributed in such a way that nobody can really have that much of it. Mm-hmm. Because if if social mobility were true, if anybody could be a guardian, uh, powerful or wealthy or successful people would be encouraged to move out of their established position. And things like, wow, oh, I don't, I'm just going to pick an example out of nowhere. Real estate magnates <laughs> might be tempted to rule society. Mm. What a weird world that would be. <laughs> oh. Have you taught this section, Michael? This is this is one of the sections I used to teach every year in uh in Intro to Philosophy. I, I'm curious to know how students receive um the idea that the 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 different ideas of vocation and um fitness for career and so forth. Uh, because you know, I mean, you know, we all know that students come in, um, and one of the tendencies that they they often express 
is the tendency to say, I, you know, autonomously have decided that this is my calling. Um, right. And uh, often you have to disabuse them of that notion when it is found that the gifting or the, uh, you know, the willingness to work hard in this particular way uh, is is lacking. Um, uh, right. So if like they come in wanting to be an engineer, not at not at the school I taught at because we didn't have an engineering program, but this is a good example. Sure. So they they come in feeling like that's their that's their vocation, and yet if they can't do high level math, they don't have the capability of doing that, and it would be unjust to tr- to to waste their money um, in that program. Right. An- another right. one you see mm-hmm. all the time is nursing majors. Yeah. Mm. So a lot of people want to be nurses because they're empathetic people, which is a good thing, right? You want your nurses to be empathetic. Unfortunately, you also have to have to have a certain scientific acumen, a certain um, a certain orderliness of life, a certain perseverance. And if you don't have those things, it doesn't matter if you feel like you're called to be a nurse. Right. You ain't going to be a nurse. You're not actually called to it. Right. Right. Or I mean, the other metaphor that he comes back to, and I think this is this is why gymnastic is so important, um, a certain degree of accepting discipline, um, accepting that you will uh, have to order your life around um, repetitive and often grueling tasks that are only there to make you fit for something. Um, n- there's a great deal of that for the nurse. There's a great deal of that for pretty much any demanding vocation, um, and it's the kind of it's the kind of discipline that um, I found athletes understand in terms of ath- in terms of athletics. And when I talk and when trying to kind of and when I'm working with students who who have an athletic background, um, I use that discourse mm-hmm. ex- pretty much exclusively um, to to describe what it is that they need to be doing in these other avenues mm-hmm. of life. You know, you have accepted that that rigor and discipline is necessary for excellence in this one avenue of life, and you have seen what that rigor and discipline has done um, as it has made you fit to do particular mm-hmm. things. Um, unless you are able to accept that same discipline in another avenue of life, um, you will not be fitted for this thing that you're studying. For. Yeah, that's that's so apt uh, for you know as a description of my experience with the students that I have because so many are involved in music and or athletics, and uh, to be able to turn their experiences in those arenas onto the academic side um, is so valuable. Uh, because nobody would imagine trying to perform, uh, you know, Rachmaninoff's third without having repeatedly studied and played it uh, and worked hard to become adept at doing the things you need to do. Um, and, you know, when, when, that, when I'm able to, to use that tool to then encourage students to, yeah, you really actually have to do more practice problems in physics to become skilled at it. Right. E- even if you have a natural gifting, there's a, you know, there's a growth mindset that needs to be turned on too that says, yeah, and, and there's a lot of hard work that's necessary for you to be able to perform well in this way. 
And if you have the ability to point to their experience as athletes or, or musicians, you've got a you know you've got a, a a helpful a helpful avenue for discussion. Well, that sounds like a good note to end on, since we're uh, running out of time here. Thank you guys for coming on and discussing book four of the Republic. Thank you for listening at home. Uh, we have extensive show notes for this episode and the other episodes of the core curriculum at christianhumanist.org, where you can also learn about our other many programs on this network and maybe get to listening to them as well. Next week, we'll have an entirely different panel talking about book five of the Republic. We hope you'll tune in then. Thanks for listening.